0: Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Harold Meyerson will have today's political update. Southern Republicans will reopen businesses in their states, starting in Georgia with tattoo parlors. And we'll also speak with Barbara Ehrenreich about the experiment she conducted 20 years ago trying to survive on low-wage work. Her classic essay, Nickel and Dimed, is the lead piece in her new book, a collection of essays titled Had I Known? But first, Mike Davis on the geopolitics of the pandemic and the depression. Mike, of course, best known for writing City of Quartz. He's got a book coming out this week. It's called Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm the co-author on that one. He also wrote a book in 2005 on another virus, the avian flu. That one is called Monster at Our Door, and recently he's been writing a lot about the new virus, including several pieces for the nation. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, so far... 90% of the reported cases and deaths from the coronavirus have occurred in the rich developed countries. The highest number in the world right now is right here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. But there are 2 billion people in poor countries who don't have medical care or health insurance or unemployment benefits. So we have a lot to talk about here. Maybe we should start with the developed world. The highest rate, is first of all in Spain, which has been five times higher than the United States per capita. Italy is second, but right across the border in Germany, the death rate is about half of what we have in the United States. So we see huge differences in Western Europe.
1: Well, what we also see in Western Europe is the collapse of any kind of coordination or mutual aid within the European Union. And in many respects, the EU uh, response has been as disorganized and fragmented uh, as the case of the United States. Now, within the EU, countries still control most of their health policy, but the EU EU has a convention that in the case of a disease emergency, a pandemic, countries will provide each other with... uh, Uh, mutual aid and the attempt to coordinate it as a community. The opposite of that happened almost immediately after uh, the end of uh, the carnival week in ski season where Italians probably picked up the virus from Germans who'd been in in East Asia. uh, France sealed its border and then followed by other countries and refused to uh, share any of their medical supplies with the Italians. In the middle of March, the Italian uh, ambassador on the European Council in angrily denounced his sister countries for what he called their betrayal of Italy. And we can assume now that there's a very high probability that when the uh, Salvini's northern League government returns to power, as it most certainly will, Uh, that Italy may leave the uh, European Union just as uh, 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 Britain did. So the European Union has revealed itself once again, uh, showing the same kind of response. This response mirrors what happened, of course, been happening with the refugee uh, crisis. The whole European project now appears in in jeopardy and in doubt.
0: Well, I want to just pause for a minute to talk about the statistics here. The number of cases and the number of deaths that we know about, of course, depends on testing, which we know is way behind the disease, especially in the United States. And in a lot of places, including the United States, We are told that since hospitals are overcrowded, we should stay home until we have the most serious symptoms. Don't go to the hospital until you can't walk more than three steps. Uh, That means lots of people are dying at home or in nursing homes and may not even be counted as COVID-19 cases unless they're tested post-mortem. So the statistics, almost certainly underestimate both the number of cases and the number of deaths it, it, pretty much all over the place. Isn't that true?
1: Oh, of course. And the situation is even more bizarre uh, in, in, for in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's still relatively few cases, although now reported in every single country. But the actual uh, infection uh, is now spread and must be much much larger uh, than reported. Initially, it was thought that Africa somehow would be spared from the pandemic, mainly because uh, it's such a young continent. Yeah, three uh, percent of sub-Saharan Africans are over sixty-five, while twenty-three percent of uh, Italians are over sixty-five, fifteen percent of uh, Americans. But that doesn't take into account the pre-existing conditions, the ravages of HIV, of uh, widespread tuberculosis, and above all, of malnutrition and the lack of elementary uh, sanitation. So the real massacre of humanity may only be beginning in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, but also in the slums of South Asia. And in Latin America, where similar conditions exist.
0: Yeah, I have a friend here in LA who's got a lot of ties to Zimbabwe. I recently asked him whether the coronavirus had hit Zimbabwe yet, and he just laughed. He said, You know, they don't have doctors, they don't have hospitals, they don't have uh, testing. I looked at the official statistics uh, 14 cases in, in Zimbabwe, but you know, that's meaningless, isn't it?
1: But the problem in Africa, is that the 1980s uh, debt crisis uh, dismantled the existing institutions, public health institutions in many, many countries, and they've uh, never recovered from that. And with the possible exception of Nigeria and South Africa, all these countries have to spend far more on servicing their debt to American and European banks than they do on a public health system. So the existing facilities for treating, for instance, acute respiratory cases, are uh, minuscule or even totally absent in these countries. Uh, Kenya has 130 ICU beds. Sudan has has 30 other countries. uh, virtually have no ventilators, so they simply don't have the the resources short of a major international aid campaign. And of course, for us, uh, America first means Africa last, and the U.S. has totally abdicated uh, uh, any role in international assistance. And the Europeans are so preoccupied with their own what's called crisis of solidarity uh, that they've only supplied very meager uh, support to Africa. And meanwhile, the World Health Organization, is, which Trump is now vowing to defund, huh. uh, is in total disarray because it's been hollowed out for, for decades. Only 20% of its budget comes from Uh, direct contribution of the member governments. The rest of it has to be sought by individual negotiations with Washington, Beijing, and with things like the Gates Foundation. So the director general of the World Health Organization has spread a lot of disinformation because he's had to shuttle back and forth between Beijing and Washington Praising Trump to the skies, praising uh, Comrade Xi, uh, you know, for his heroic efforts, and all it's got him now is the enmity of uh, the Trump administration, as it turns to use uh, uh, China's supposed role in unleashing the, the pandemic as its one of its major campaign motives. I saw today that the Pew Trust, which conducts the Uh, most frequent and often most authoritative American uh, political polls that fully uh, one quarter of Americans believe uh, that coronavirus was engineered in a Chinese biowarfare lab and deliberately unleashed on the United States. Uh,
0: We need to tell those people that Trump closed the American-funded monitoring station for virus alerts in Wuhan two months before the virus escaped. So I guess Trump was in on the, uh, the deal.
1: Well, I mean, the, since the beginning of the Trump administration, the, the, the Obama administration, because it, it considered Ebola to be such a threat, uh, not only undertook an, uh, a very large-scale... Uh, aid program in West Africa, sending 3,000 American troops. But it also reinforced the institutions responsible uh, for early warning about pandemics and and for response. Uh, It jacked up the Directorate for uh, uh, World Health Safety within the National Security Council. Uh, a group of some of the most expert people uh, on disease response in the country involved in that. And it set up an expanded, uh, actually expanded an existing program that you alluded to, uh, which basically set up observatories all over the world uh, to detect and analyze uh, emergent viruses as, uh, as they came. So when Trump took power, and because he feels the same way about Obama programs that Dracula does about (laughs) crosses, he he began to systematically dismantle all of this, starting with budget cuts to the CDC, the dispersal of some of its key scientists, then turned on, actually it was John Bolton who, who led this, Turned on the uh, directorate inside the NSC and dissolved it and fired uh, these people who were, you know, some of our most experienced administrators of uh, disaster response. Uh, He then, just uh, in September, as you were talking about, uh, he cut off all the funding for the early warning system. And of course, this is you know against the background of continuous assaults on American public health in, in in general, uh, cutting back uh, medical aid in 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 places, leaving a public health system in this country, which really uh, suffered major blows during the two thousand and eight recession, with for instance uh, sixty thousand fewer public health workers than it had. Uh, before 2008. Uh, uh, Let
0: me shift the focus here for a minute to India. Um, You've written some really interesting stuff about the Indian experience of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and uh, its implications for, for this pandemic.
1: Well, I think everybody knows now is uh, and understands that the Spanish flu, 1918, 1990, actually misnamed since the first outbreak was in Kansas, so we should probably call it the Kansas flu. Okay. Everybody knows it's the biggest uh, single mortality event probably in human history, but the story that's uh, usually told in the classical accounts concentrates on the United States, and it concentrates on the Western Front. Where the Spanish flu incapacitated and killed so many soldiers that it became a uh, played a decisive role in who won the uh, first world war. But sixty percent of the people who died on earth died in western India. we're talking about twenty million people. Wow, and the disease that in the United States have been characterized as a mortal danger primarily to, primarily to uh, healthy young men and women because uh, somehow it turned their immune systems against their lungs, took on an entirely different shape in India. Why? Well, the Indians were famished. Uh, as part of the war effort, uh, the British literally expropriated Uh, crops to feed their armies in the field in the Middle East. And they accelerated grain exports to England. There was a drought. There had also been a a cholera epidemic. So when it reached India, it reached what was in some ways a a different immunological humanity, you know, where there were millions of people who were immune-compromised, weak, had some kind of existing uh, condition. And this reshaped the nature of the pandemic, as it did in some other countries. Iran, which was occupied by the British during the First World War, uh, similar problems with high food prices and shortages. But most of all, there had been a spike in malaria. And it turns out that malaria is a co-infection with the uh, Spanish flu was absolutely deadly. And 20% of the Iranian population uh, died in the course of 1918, early 1919. So this provides us with a very chilling uh, uh, case study for understanding what may happen now as uh, millions of cases develop in the global south well,
0: looking forward to what's going to happen when, when the virus is finally tamed, presumably by a vaccine. China is already recovering in a pretty impressive way. And China is also emerging as the place we need to go to get masks, ventilators, and all kinds of equipment. Is this going to be the future of world health?
1: Uh... I mean, China has been able to step into the gap created by European and and, uh, uh, American uh, lack of any kind of commitment or or aggressive attempt to aid the third world. So it's currently aiding dozens, perhaps scores of countries, uh, ranging uh, from uh, Ecuador to to Italy, but certainly almost in every country. uh, in Latin America. And this is very helpful to, to China because China's hard economic clout has increased, of course, astronomically over the last 20 years. So that, for instance, uh, most of Africa is in debt to China uh, because of loans or because of big infrastructural projects that have been talked into, uh, uh, doing. And there's a, been a reaction over the last couple of years, Africans wondering, if, gee, this Chinese aid, isn't this just a new form of, of neocolonialism? So China's had in a way a deficit of soft power, of, of moral prestige. And by being able to respond, and respond with, with such an enormous output of medical supplies and expertise, It takes over the humanitarian leadership that's been forfeited by Brussels uh, and Washington. Although China now is uh, in a very dangerous situation since the internationalized uh, chains of of production, the so-called value chains, are now temporarily shut down. But they probably will never regain the importance or centrality they had in the world economy after this is over to the extent it's over. I think we're now realizing we live we're living not just in a pandemic but an agent of 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 pandemics and there be a lot of pressure now to ensure that each country can supply itself with uh crucial medical supplies but beyond that we're going to see the repatriation of production and this might seem to be the dream that uh you know so much of blue-collar america has of the factories coming back but the problem is it will also accelerate automation as cheap labor becomes less essential in the in the global economy and uh China is already plagued with huge contradictions about which uh, thousands of economists and investors and business magazines have been obsessed with for the, you know, for the last few years. So even as it gains uh, prestige through its response to the disease, uh, faced with the decline of its uh, exports and its uh, trade surpluses, it, Falls in a dangerous position. That's why it would be incorrect to say that, well, the pandemic's just accelerating the transition from uh, an American dominated world economy to a Chinese dominated one, because China's stability is very much in doubt.
0: We're living not just through a pandemic, but in an age of pandemics. Mike Davis, you can read him, among other places, at thenation.com. Mike, thanks for talking with us today.
1: My pleasure, John.
0: I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch Podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time for today's political update. And so we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
2: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, the big news today is that Georgia and South Carolina are going to reopen for business tomorrow, Friday. The governors there seem to think the virus is finished in their states. It's burnt out. It is gone. And tomorrow, Georgia starts by reopening barbershops, nail salons, and tattoo parlors. Let me emphasize tattoo parlors. I wonder if you have any comment on this.
2: Well, you know, I mean, he should have gone further and uh, included um, a, a feature at old county fairs, which were kissing booths. You know, <laughs> okay. uh, um, I, I think he left out kissing booths. And it, it, if if you know the coronavirus is absolutely dead and gone, there's nothing wrong with a kissing booth. So, uh, <laughs> other than you know his being incomplete, uh, nonetheless, we what we have is. Perhaps the clearest statement of disregard for human life we have seen uh, directly, at least, uh, in, uh, in, in quite some time. I mean, obviously, when, when we're in a war against a foreign power, you have a certain disregard of, for human life of the soldiers of that foreign power. To see it uh, expressed towards one's own uh, citizenry is, uh, is something else again.
0: Georgia has a Republican governor who himself has reached office through a, remind us, controversial path.
2: Yes, uh, he was the state's chief election officer uh, in 2018 as Secretary of State, also the Republican candidate for governor. And he uh, therefore uh, put in place a whole series of voter suppression measures that uh, doubtless uh, led to his victory over the Democrat Stacey Abrams in that election. So uh, uh, it's it's clear that there is particularly a certain category of Georgian uh, who he would want to exclude from the electorate, uh, and want to exclude, you know, now from you know possibly life itself. <laughs> Uh, I, I should add that one of the interesting things we're seeing in, in southern states right now, since the three states that are uh, poised to open are Georgia and South Carolina and uh, perhaps Tennessee, um, is the opposition this is uh, causing among mayors in cities that are more densely populated than rural areas, cities that tend to have, uh, you know, a, a more diverse Therefore, democratic electorate, um, as opposed to white, the white rural South, which is the basis of uh, the Republican coalitions in uh, in those states. So we're, we're we're seeing yet again, as we've seen in the South before on other issues, like a city like Birmingham, Alabama, tries to raise a minimum wage, and the state led the, the Republican state legislature passes a law saying cities can't do that. We're seeing a kind of at a almost heightened level. Uh, the conflict between places like, uh, cities like Atlanta and states like Georgia.
0: And even Trump says it's too soon for tattoo parlors to reopen in Georgia, but but isn't Trump egging on the protesters around the country demanding the end-to-stay-at-home rules? I'm, I'm confused.
2: Yeah, well, you're not the only one. Yes, he's egging. He's doing a lot of egging. Uh, and, okay. uh, or egging on, as it were. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, Trump sees this as a way to rally his base in a time when there isn't uh, a lot of support uh, for what he's doing, at least he can uh, reach out to his, you know, the extremists in his base who make up a not unreasonable portion of his base um, and uh, at least get them uh, activated. Uh, and if this is a strategy to mobilize uh, swing voters uh, in in his favor, I, I don't think it works. Most of the uh, polling out there shows a, a great deal of support for keeping the uh, stay-at-home orders in place and opposition uh, to the uh, the goals of these of these demonstrators um, uh, so uh, you know it, it's it's kind of the reductio ad absurdum of what seems to be Trump's political strategy which is entirely about mobilizing his base and uh, you know that's all of
0: course there Big question we all wonder about is, when will it be time to reopen businesses? We are concerned about the, about the tens of millions of people who basically have no savings, who need, who need money coming in every week to pay for essentials. On the other hand, there's the case of Singapore I was just reading about. Singapore did almost everything right. They did early closure, they did early social distancing, they did contact, contact tracing. They have pretty good medical care and they held down cases and deaths for a long time and then they reopened for business. But now, just in the last two days, we've learned they, they forgot, I guess you could say, about the migrant workers in dormitories where there is now a big spike in coronavirus cases that could infect everyone else. It's the famous second wave that everybody worries about. Housing for migrant workers in Singapore doesn't look like slum housing, I'm told. They're, they're clean, but they are crowded. They do have urban density, and social life takes place on the streets. So these are the factors that cause the disease. And now Singapore is back to lockdown with the second wave, and they don't think they'll be reopening again until June. I suppose something like this is going to happen in, in Georgia and in South Carolina.
2: You would think so, and it, it's it's kind of socioeconomically revelatory, or at least interesting, that uh, Singapore more or less forgot about its migrant workers, which is something, yeah. you know, we in the U.S. do all the time with our farm workers, who uh, live in appalling and usually crowded conditions, um, with uh, often just simply the poor in urban areas who... Uh, uh, in a non-relational way, shack up, uh, many of them in a, a relatively confined uh, small apartment, uh, particularly given the uh, the cost of housing in, in places like California and New York. Um, so uh, the, what the southern governors have done is basically almost said, okay, we, we know there's an urban poor that ain't going to vote for us, and uh, uh, this probably leaves them most exposed. Well, opening up leaves them most exposed. Well, good. I mean, you know, they're just democratic votes uh, right. if they vote at all. So um, I think that's what we're seeing uh, in, the, uh, in the good old American South. Uh,
0: let's talk about aid for states and cities, which of course are going deep into the red now, and they're required to balance their budgets. So we desperately need federal aid to states and cities, but Mitch McConnell is talking now about something he calls, quote, stop blue state bailouts, close quote. He says states like California and New York should consider bankruptcy instead. wonder if you have any comment.
2: Well, I think uh, a state more likely to declare bankruptcy if this goes through is Mitch McConnell's own Kentucky. Um, he seems to forget that when you deny aid to states and cities, uh, you're denying aid uh, to your own, uh, to Republican-run uh, states as well as Democratic-run states. Uh, I, I should add, I, I think, you know, what we really have to watch out for, um, since I, I think, the, you know, the Republicans are going to be compelled to do something here, and, and, and Trump seems to be on board with having to do something, is aid to states but not cities, because... Cities are the Democratic base. Cities, I mean, of the 30 largest American cities, I think all but one have Democratic mayors. Uh, So um, I hadn't thought of this until you asked me this question, but I think there's a real possibility we may see aid to states, but not cities, uh, and that that will be the Republican position. And it'll be interesting to see how the Democrats respond to that. you know, and, you know, there's there's definitely a, a portion of the Republican base that I think would go along with that, you know, that in our sort of neo-Civil War mentality, you know, um, I mean, you can't rule out blue states, but, you know, you, you can, as a category, uh, uh, designate cities as blue, as you cannot with, with, with states.
0: Let's change the subject here and talk about presidential politics and the big question on the minds of all Democrats, who should Biden pick as his running mate? Biden needs so many things in order to win a high black turnout, a high Latino turnout, a high Democratic turnout, especially in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He needs a high turnout among young people who mostly did not vote for him in the primary. And we'd also like somebody as vice president who could be a successor as president which which for you of all these considerations uh are should take priority
2: well if uh first of all i don't think there has been a vice presidential pick who has ensured uh you know one additional state to the victory column of uh, of a democratic president since lyndon johnson was uh, jack kennedy's pick in 1960 and and johnson may have brought texas in in that year into the democratic column but counting on uh people uh you know swings counting on voters in states to be ultimately swayed by who your vp pick uh there's just like no evidence in voting patterns that that has happened in the last about 60 years um presidentiality, as it were, certainly matters since, uh, uh, two things, since we don't know, you know, if how Biden physically would, would fare during his four years, uh, as president, should he be elected? or uh, and, you know, then the question of assuming he is, wants to serve just for one term, uh, giving the VP pick a, a leg up to succeed him in the following election. So, among the leading contenders, if you look at who has demonstrated managerial uh, chops, as it were, um, there aren't a lot of uh, Democratic women governors, and the one who's gotten the most ink is Gretchen Whitmer in uh, in Michigan, which is also a swing state. So she probably gets points for that in terms of who has political, you know, a, a real keen political sense and, you know, uh, sense of how to build public support for creative policies, you would look at Elizabeth Warren. Uh, From my point of view, I think Biden has kind of nailed down uh, the moderate vote, uh, uh, certainly uh, upper middle class, moderate vote, upper middle class Republican women who've had it with Trump. That's been clear already. Um, And I think uh, Amy Klobuchar, since she speaks to that constituency, uh, really is, is, is the closest thing to a Biden clone. I mean, you know, he's sort of bo- picking her would broaden the Biden coalition, uh, by adding to it, the Biden coalition, which is to say <laughs> okay. nothing. uh, okay. uh I, I, think he needs to mend the rift in the democratic party. He not only lost in every state voters under 30, he lost voters under 45, uh, who are looking for, I think a more you know, creative and frankly, more social democratic, uh, uh, platform than, than Biden appeared to be offering. And that argues strongly for Elizabeth Warren among all of the uh, current front runners as the candidate who could close that gap in Democratic ranks, which is, you know, the main gap he experienced on the primary trail. He wasn't, uh, he, he was winning record numbers of black voters without a running mate, even in Milwaukee, um, which had closed uh 175 of the 180 polling places on election day, thanks to the uh, Republican insistence on, on having in-person voting on election day. Um, you know, his weakness with minorities isn't with African Americans, it's with Latinos. Uh, and there aren't a lot of Latino options uh, uh, in the way in which the field is narrowed to Latinas. Uh, so uh, I, I I think his strongest pick could be Elizabeth Warren. And then, then there's a problem that any one of these senators, were they to become vice president, would create a one-seat vacancy in the Senate. Um, Most of the senators being mentioned have uh, come from states with Democratic governors who could appoint a uh, a Democratic temporary successor, but that successor would have to stand for Um, re-election. Of the various senators being mentioned, the only one you could be sure would ultimately be succeeded by a Democrat would be California's Kamala Harris, because there's no way uh, California would elect anyone but a Democrat.
0: My only reservation about Elizabeth Warren is that she did not do well in the Democratic primary here in Southern California, where we record our show. She carried just a handful of of precincts. In Orange County, I think she carried only one precinct, the one at UC Irvine. In Los Angeles, she carried, you know, West Hollywood, part of Santa Monica but she, has not, she did not get a lot of votes. Is that a problem?
2: Well, it's sort of a problem, but the person who did get a lot of votes in California wasn't Joe Biden either. It was Bernie Sanders. <laughs> that's Bernie true. Bernie Sanders won big in California, and that's the constituency where Biden needs to grow support, not in California because, you know, any Democrat ever living would win California <laughs> over Donald Trump, yes. uh, but it, it's a constituency he needs to do better in And of the various options out there, Warren is the only one I can see who might help him do better within that constituency.
0: And one last note, Um, the vice presidential pick on the Republican side, you know, when he picked Pence, it wasn't because Pence was a brilliant politician or because the Republicans needed Indiana. It was because Pence was likely to lose his race for re-election as governor of Indiana and nobody else in the Republican Party, wanted to be associated with Donald Trump. Uh, do you think Pence is surefire to stay on the ticket this time?
2: Well, probably, but I had a weird thought as I was writing this article, which is up on the Prospect website, American Prospect website today about vice presidential picks, which is to say, if Trump lets Trump be Trump and, and really do what he wants to do, I, I think given that His favorite system of government is probably authoritarian monarchy. And given his commitment, his deepest ideological commitment, even beyond racism, is to narcissism. I think in uh, what's what what we will metaphorically describe in Trump's case as his heart of hearts, knowing that, that, you know, this is a man where you would have to use a microscope to find any heart. Um, his, his deepest desire uh, for a pick would probably be uh, Donald Jr., his son. So I, I just <laughs> wanted to throw that out there. I don't expect it, but um, it, should it happen, I expect to be acclaimed uh, a, across the entire solar system.
0: Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. It's always great to have you on the
2: show. It's always great to be here, John.
0: I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues.
1: Ooh, ooh, ooh,
0: ooh. <laughs> it's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to speak with Barbara Ehrenreich. She's got a new book out, it's called Had I Known. It's a collection of her greatest essays, starting with the unforgettable nickel and dimed, her experiment in low-wage work. It became her first bestseller, and since then it's been assigned in hundreds of colleges, often as the common freshman reading, the book all members of a school's incoming freshman class read over the summer and then talk about during orientation week. We talked with Barbara Ehrenreich about Nickel and Dimed when the book was first published in 2002. Barbara Ehrenreich, the question you take up is, how does anyone live today on the wages available to unskilled workers? And the answer that you come up with briefly is that it's almost impossible. What were the rules you set for yourself in the beginning?
3: Well, my initial rules were that I had to um, find the Cheapest place I could to live in, but consistent with living indoors and, you know, some degree of uh, safety. Okay. Um, that, was, that kind of rule got violated a little bit at certain times. And then I had to take the best-paying job I could get. And my third rule was I had to try, you know, I had to work hard and, you know, try my best and not get fired for some silly reason.
0: So the first job you got was uh, waitressing close to home in Key West. Uh, tell us what the, what the work was like and what the money was like.
3: Well, uh, I think a lot of people probably listening have served in restaurants uh, at some point in their lives. I, I had done so in, when I was a teenager and in college. Me too. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you know what it's like. It's, um, it's pretty exhausting work. You're always on your feet. You're running a lot of the time. And even if the place isn't full of customers, you've got all your side work to keep up with. But I, I knew that to begin with. Wages are pathetic. Um, wages are two dollars and change an hour.
0: Wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute. $2? Two dollars.
3: Two dollars, and um, in one place it was fifteen cents an hour.
0: I what what, what what about wait a minute? What about the minimum wage it loss? How, apply, how can they pay you?
3: Servers are tipped. Ah. Uh, so you're you it's that's. You know that's where your money comes from. I, I hope everybody realizes this. The tipping isn't optional for the server, uh, at least from the server's perspective, uh, because you absolutely have to get you have to get that to you know even get up to the minimum wage.
0: So how much were you able to make with tips working as a waitress in Kiwi? Well,
3: I I was in some pretty um, let's see dismal places, uh, and I'm not young enough to get the really good jobs. You have to be. Uh, young and attractive to get the really high-tip jobs, and I'm, I'm not experienced, you know. I, my experience is decades out of date, so I got uh, not great jobs in places with, um, one place was very slow, there wasn't enough business, so I left that job, went to another, uh, which was higher volume, but the tips were still awfully low, averaging around 10%. So, uh, you know, I've made, I average 7 750 an hour somewhere in there as a waitress.
0: Did your co-workers um, have any secret economies, any tricks to making this, this kind of uh, money uh, last longer that, that middle-class people don't know about?
3: Well, no. <laughs> you know, I sort of thought, maybe I'll find out. Maybe there's some secret to this that I can't guess, yeah. unless I get out there and do it. Uh, but... No, I found, well, you know, there are strategies you can imagine. Uh, you know, the most common one is that you have to have more than one low-wage earner in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that can mean grown children or even teenage children as well as a spouse, something like that. So you try to patch it together that way. Another strategy is um, taking more than one job. Uh, and I did try that, too, Um and I have to admit, I could not do two demand, you know, physically demanding jobs in one day. Uh, I was warned <laughs> that it would. I was warned by um, a manager that it would be impossible, and uh, she was right. But a lot of people uh, do, you know, combine usually a job and a half, eight hours and six hours, or something like that. Very, very difficult. But I also found that a lot of people you know, that I was working alongside weren't really quite making it. At least a couple of people turned out to be actually homeless, although I wouldn't have guessed it because I just, you know, have stereotypes in my mind of how homeless people should look, and these people look fine, and they, you know, you can find places to shower uh, very often, public places, and come to work clean. But the odd thing was that these people didn't consider themselves homeless because if, as long as you have a car or a... I mean, or a van or something to sleep in, uh, that's not really considered absolutely homeless.
0: When you applied for these jobs as waitress or later a hotel housekeeper, wasn't it obvious that you were a middle-class, educated uh, intellectual?
3: I, I guess I thought, too, that there was a danger that I would be, uh, you know, that I might stand out and uh, in some way, but no. Never. The only way I stood out Never. in every job was that I was the least, you know, always the new person and had a lot to learn. I had to sort of, I kind of minimize my uh, experience in education a little bit on application forms. I didn't put down that I have a PhD. Uh, I didn't think that would help me get jobs because, <laughs> you know, they think what's wrong with her, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I described myself as a divorced homemaker re-entering the workforce after several years. And that's true as far as it goes, right? Now, I'm a freelance writer. It's not the same as having jobs.
0: <laughs> um, and, and what was the state of uh, sort of uh, class solidarity and class conflict on the job, start, starting in Key West?
3: Almost everybody I worked alongside with worked really hard and really put their hearts into their, their work. and took a lot of pride in, in doing a good job. On the other side of it, though, was that um, management tended not to respect uh, the amount of work and effort uh, they were getting uh, from, from people. Uh, and um, I, was, I was astounded, really, at how badly uh, people are treated.
0: Um, what, do you, what do you mean, badly treated? Well,
3: first, for one thing, you have no privacy in, in uh, the low-wage workplace, and actually a lot of medium-wage workplaces, too these days uh... you know from the beginning when you just have to go through a drug test and uh... a personality test uh... to get the job i mean i think those things are invasions of privacy on my one of my very first days at, at work in one of these waitressing jobs and this applies to all the other places too i was warned that my purse could be searched at any time by management and you know i couldn't believe it but. That's true. Management has the right to search your purse or your backpack or whatever. If it's on his property, you are subject to all kinds of ridiculous rules. Rules like no gossiping. <laughs> or in a Walmart, it was no talking.
2: <laughs> wow.
3: I mean, you could you could talk to other people just if it was about the work in a, in a very brief way, but you were not ever to chat with a fellow worker, even if there was no, you know, urgent thing to do at that moment. So you had to sneak to do that. Or rules like um, no eating or drinking anything, which um, was really an unhealthy kind of rule at one place I I worked, which was a house cleaning service, and we could be cleaning one giant house for four hours and be... um, you know, not allowed to have a bite of anything or a sip of water during that time.
0: Then there uh, were also the rules about going to the bathroom.
3: Well, well, I thought that there would be breaks <laughs> everywhere. I thought breaks were a right. But no, um, there is... Um, OSHA says you have the right to go to the bathroom in a timely fashion, but that's not something that is enforced um, very uh, energetically. Sometimes you have to sneak to take a leak.
0: Now it's time for your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keillor. Uh, Barbara, you moved to Minneapolis where people are nice and where wages are high. Uh, you applied for a job at Walmart. Uh, what happened then?
3: Well, let me say, it's not that easy to get a job at Walmart. <laughs> uh, there, there's the quite a, a tricky person uh, personality test you have to get through. And uh, I was told before I took it, you know, don't worry, there are no right or wrong answers, just whatever you think. Well, then the uh, personnel manager came back from the computer where she graded my personality and said, uh, I had some answers wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what was wrong with your personality from Walmart's well, point see, of view?
3: My strategy with these, these tests was to give the obvious right answer. You know, it's usually pretty... An- Obvious, you know. It's a, it's a proposition in the in the test is I have stolen the following amount check dollar amount below <laughs> of goods from my employers in the last year.
0: I see what you mean. You know,
3: it's going to be zero. <laughs> yeah. Or if the, the another uh, test proposition you often run into is it's it's always better to work when you're a little bit high.
0: Mm, that's not, a tough. <laughs> not. That's a tough one to know the right answer yeah. to.
3: Yeah, but the one that I got one of the ones I got wrong, and I don't remember the um, others quite so exactly. You have to follow all rules to the letter at all times. Uh agree and how do you agree strongly and you know, very strongly up to totally strongly. And I put um I think I put very strongly because I thought, you know, if I put went too was too blatant, they'd think I was faking out the test. But no, the correct answer was, totally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very um, strongly is the wrong answer to the question, how how strongly do you believe in obeying the rules?
3: Yeah, and see, I didn't want to look like too much of a suck-up, but you can Big never mistake. be too much
0: of a suck-up. <laughs> Big mistake. Nevertheless, you got this job at Walmart. Now, uh, you say you made mistakes in Minnesota. What were your mistakes?
3: I think I could have possibly gotten a better-paying job and was offered what appeared to be a better-paying job by another big-box store. But the thing that kind of really scared me about it was it was an 11-hour shift. Now, that has to be illegal. Uh, and, I, and I said, how can this be? And they said, well, do you want the job or not? you yeah. want to work full-time or not? Maybe I should have taken that one and just tried to keep on my feet for 11 hours at a time. I don't think I could have done it, though.
0: So instead, you took the Walmart job and you went to the Walmart orientation. I must say this was, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of your book.
3: Yes. Well, you know, Walmart is more than a corporation. It's a cult. Uh, (laughs) Okay. It it takes uh, an eight-hour orientation, no matter how lowly your job. You know, people, greeters, everybody go through this orientation uh, this went stretched from 3 p.m. to al- almost 11 p.m. And one of the most interesting things to me about it, in addition to the cult-like things, you know, the v- many speeches from Sam Walton on video, on video um, who is dead, um, <laughs> was uh, a 12-minute um, video uh, warning us about unions.
0: Oh, yes. so yeah. and, and what what do they tell you is, is uh, the union situation at Walmart?
3: Well, they they said there's a danger that unions are often trying to uh, get a foothold at Walmart, and that we had to watch out for that, because unions would take away our rights, not that we had any, (laughs) and, uh, and would, of course, charge ridiculously high dues and so on. It was very frustrating to sit through, because, of course, there was no rebuttal, no alternative viewpoint presented.
0: And and uh, after uh, going through the eight-hour Walmart orientation, Barbara Ehrenreich, at last you went to work, and you uh, sold the the famous Kathy Lee collection.
3: Yes, well, I at first was quite thrilled to be in ladies' wear, thinking I would be in a position to give, be giving fashion tips <laughs> to Midwesterners who you're, you're could see- use some fashion tips. <laughs> Actually, turned out to be one of the hardest jobs in the store because. Women try on clothes, and in Walmart, they try them on by the shopping cart full.
0: The shopping cart full?
3: Oh, yeah, you shop with a shopping cart, even in the clothing departments there. And my job uh, was to put everything back in its exact place. Uh The things people had tried on, as well as things they had tossed on the floor or uh, secreted in the wrong parts of the department. And this was very mentally taxing uh... John, the one i never call any job unskilled anymore uh... to learn where everything went and then just when i had that all memorized and i knew the the whole map of ladies wear and all the different clothing lines in it you know kathy lee jordash faded glory white stag et cetera et cetera uh... the manager would change the whole thing huh. because they you know they just do that in uh, retail
0: one last question you took these jobs under a bit of a false pretense. Um, did you ever come out to, to any of your coworkers? And And if so, what was their response to finding out that really you were a middle-class writer on assignment? Uh,
3: well, yes, I, uh, that deception weighed heavily on me, and I was always very anxious before coming out to, you know, someone, um, you know, you or a few people who I knew especially well, at the end of my career in a particular job. And I didn't know what response to get. I would get, but what I got was quite surprising was people were really underwhelmed when I had say, you know, I'm really a writer. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's a writer. Uh-huh. Uh, anybody who's literate is a writer. Mm. And I did run into people who were writing poems or a journal or even a book in one case, uh, you know, We have a lot of, you know, maybe assumptions about low-wage people that are really wrong. And it didn't change their image, I think, that much of me as a waitress or a house cleaner.
0: Barbara Ehrenreich's classic essay, Nickel and Dimed, started out as an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1999 and became a best-selling book in 2002. That's when we recorded this interview. The original piece opens her new book of collected essays. It's out now. And it's called Had I Known. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.